0: Father, we just come before you, and we thank you so much, Lord, for your blessing upon us, and Lord, for your Holy Spirit. We pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts and our minds tonight as we look into your word. Speak to us, Lord. Let us find ourselves in the pages of the book. Lord, it is so critical and so important in our lives, Lord, that we are able to uh, relate to it and to apply it into our lives and let it direct and guide the steps of our, our life as well so lord accomplish these things in us tonight and we thank you for it and lift it before you in jesus name and everybody's son amen. amen all right we're in galatians chapter 2 tonight we will be picking up our text in verse 11 and uh, shouldn't have too much difficulty finishing the chapter off tonight. We've been talking about the situation that was going on. The reason, the purpose for the letter was that um, in the area of Galatia, there were Judaizers that were coming in trying to tell people that what they needed uh, was to obey the law of Moses. They needed to be circumcised. They needed to Uh, Observe the sabbath the moons the feast and all these things that just faith alone in jesus wasn't good enough and paul uh, immediately begins to address that Uh, unlike many of his other epistles where he kind of eases into things he has you know kind words and greetings and that kind of thing but in the book of galatians he just jumps right in the middle of it and he starts right out and said, you know, that uh, that if somebody gives you some other gospel than the one I gave you, then they are anathema. And he repeats that twice, and, and he tells them that there is no other gospel except for the one that he has, and that is, of course, the gospel of, of grace through faith in Jesus Christ In that alone. That there is no works to it, that it's believing God and believing uh, in Jesus Christ himself. And so in chapter one, he started in in that area. And then in chapter two, you remember when we got there that one of the things that Paul was doing in this addressing the issue of others coming in with false teachings, uh, not only was it that they were bringing in a false doctrine, but they were also bringing in things about him. They were saying that Paul was, uh, was not really uh, an apostle, that he didn't have authority, that, uh, that his gospel wasn't true, and the things that he said, he, he didn't, really didn't know what he was talking about. And so Paul goes there, Uh, in chapter 2 and he begins to defend himself in that regard and when I say defend himself it is that he makes a case for the fact that that he is indeed he is equal to all the apostles and he brings attention to the fact that uh, that he was instructed by Christ himself uh, just as the apostles were they were instructed by Christ himself and so was he and that his authority carried great weight Uh, and that uh, the things that they were saying about him were not true. And he tells us here in the first part of this chapter how he had gone up to Jerusalem, and there was a, a conference that he had, if you will, and they settled the issue of whether or not the Gentiles needed to become Jews, basically, after they had come to faith in Christ. Because you remember that the church at this time was a Jewish church. So the people, most of the people that were getting saved were Jews. And and so they still continued in their Judaism as well. As as far as uh, they worshiped Christ on Sunday, on Saturday, they went to temple or they went to synagogue. And they carried on with a lot of their traditions, if you will, Uh, which was fine. There was nothing wrong with that. But was it that the the Gentiles needed to now come underneath that same yoke of bondage that the Jews had been under. And Paul's going to address that as we go through the rest of this chapter, as why should they be put under that that yoke of bondage that the Jews themselves had been delivered from uh, through faith in Christ. And so as Paul is addressing these things, and he's defending himself, and he's talking about how there was Peter, James, and John, and how they extended the right end of fellowship there in Jerusalem to, um, uh, yeah, Paul and uh, (laughs) Barnabas. Thank you, Lord, uh, for a little moment there. I had one of those Charlie moments, you know, a brain freeze. Uh, Just kidding, Charlie. Uh, But you know, the fact is, is that they had made this public display in front of the whole church there in Jerusalem, that the gospel that Paul was presenting, and the fact that they were presenting it to the Gentiles, uh, that they were totally in agreement with that, and they were okay with it. And as a matter of fact, the only thing that they required is that they didn't uh, eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. Uh, they refrained from sexual immorality that they gave to the poor. Uh, and so they, they gave them some things that would really just make common sense that after becoming a believer that you would now do. So it wasn't any kind of law and legalism. And so as Paul is addressing this, and he's talking about how the, that Peter, James, and John had given him them this right hand of fellowship. Uh, He then comes to, uh, I want to pick it up in uh, verse 7, as Paul had been addressing the very um, issue as to whether or not he was uh, qualified for the presenting of the gospel. In verse 7 he says, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcision. A circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. In verse 9 it says, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And then in verse 10 it says, uh, they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing that I was also eager to do. And in chapter 15 of Acts, verses 28 and 29, we have that what their, what kind of rule, if you will, they gave them. Well, it was simple. It said, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood, or the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. These were the only things. And then Paul goes in in verse 11. He's, he's going to talk about, uh, here earlier he had talked about the fact that uh, the apostles, even though you know, they were critical to the church and everything, uh, but they really uh, you know, were embracing him as a um, uh, contemporary, Somebody that was you know, doing that, exactly. But then he says in verse 11, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him face to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So this goes right along with what is he's making a defense of himself and his authority and how when the apostles were there, when Peter was there, um, how he confronted him face to face because of his hypocrisy in his actions. Peter was somebody that had already been delivered, set free, if you will, from the bondage of the law. The Lord had appeared uh, had a sheet appeared before him and it had every kind of unclean animal on it that a jew wouldn't eat and the lord says to peter kill and eat not so lord my you know lips have never touched anything unclean and the lord gives him a warning he says don't call unclean that which i have cleansed and he told him he says there's a man that's going to come and i want you to go with him and of course that's when peter was there at uh, the tanner's house and and this was a huge step because it was uh, it was unclean for a Jew to go to a tanner's house. Anywhere there was death. Uh, they, they, he shouldn't have been there. But what it told us there is that, that Peter was being set free from those things, from those, those bondages of the law. And so he was there at the tanner's house, Simon the tanner's house, and then uh, some servants of Cornelius come to there and tell Peter that Cornelius had had a dream and, and that he had said that uh, Peter was to come with them to his house. And now here's a next step that goes beyond what Jews would normally do. Because the centurion was a, um, a Gentile. And Jews wouldn't go to the house of a Gentile. But he knew this is what the Lord wanted him to do. He went there, and then he presented the gospel to them. And what happened was the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and they, they got saved. And it was all right there, you know. All these things would have been for a Jew, you know. To us, it's great; we love it. But to a Jew, this would have been somewhat difficult to swallow. And this is what the problem was within Judaism. Even those that were getting saved, many of them, they had they had struggles with the idea that this gospel really was not just for them, but for everybody. And if they were, if they were then. Uh, uh, converts to Christianity, then they needed to become Jews, because that's what it was. It was Christ who was a Jew, and it was a Jewish religion, if you will. Uh, uh, Christianity was in its inception, and so Peter, he was a guy that had all this liberty because God had been setting him free. He, you know, Simon at uh, Tanner's house. Uh, and then you had going to Cornelius's house, fellowshipping with the Gentiles, leading them to Christ. And then he actually there in chapter fifteen of Acts, when when uh, Paul and um, Barnabas come there, uh, Peter makes this great defense of what had taken place, and, and he reminds them that when uh, after he had come from Cornelius's house, then the guys in the church the leaders in the church they questioned him about this whole thing and he says what could i possibly do you know the gospel was presented and the holy spirit fell on them just like he did on us so had to embrace them you know this is a clear sign from the lord and peter made that defense there in chapter 15 as they're presenting the idea that gentiles would be coming to faith, that are coming to faith do not need to become jews they don't need to be circumcised they don't need to keep the law that they are saved by faith they're justified by faith and paul is saying that this here what happened is that when peter came to antioch And when it was that he came to Antioch, it's not certain, but it's it's for sure that he came up there after the Jerusalem council when more than likely when Peter and Barnabas were there, they invited him, come, come and see what's going on because it was a great work of God that was happening up there in Antioch among the Jews and the Gentiles. There were those that were getting saved. And so Peter had this great liberty already being set free from the law. But then it says that when, when there were Jews from Jerusalem that came up, these would have been men who were sent by James, uh, the head of the church there in Jerusalem, sent them up uh, to more than likely check things out, that what happened was that Peter, uh, when he saw them, then he reverted back to being his Judea no longer was he going to eat with the Gentiles he had been doing that though I mean think about this we don't know for sure because we don't have it in the scripture but I can only imagine that as Peter came into Antioch that the Christians that were there and that he became like a rock star right here you have Peter I mean this is one of the apostles one of the pillars of the church Right? And he shows up in Antioch. And, and of course, everybody knows who Peter is and, and his significance and his importance. So, I mean, you know, you can imagine he was invited to every home fellowship in the town. He was, you know, probably, you know, everybody wanted him over for dinner. And, uh, you know, they didn't ask him if he ate pork or not. They just said, okay, you just eat whatever we got, right? Because you're a Christian now. And so all this was going on. He was fellowshipping with the Gentiles. He He was embracing them. But then when these Jews came, he gave in to fear. He gave in to fear. And Paul says that he had to confront him to his face. I love this about Paul. Man, I mean, Paul was... You know, it's really funny because if you look at some uh, of the historical documentation, it, 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 I would say commentary, about Paul's appearance, uh, they, they do not paint a very favorable picture of who Paul was, who he looked like, right? And, uh, you know, they even talk about the fact that he, he wasn't real impressive, right? Uh, but his, late, his letters, man, they were weighty right? But his physical appearance, and he may have even had a squeaky voice or something, you know, just a real little ugly guy that, that his, his physical appearance wasn't very impressive at all. But boy, I got to tell you, man, and when it came to standing up for the truth and for correct doctrine, that guy, I don't care who you were, he was going to stand against you, even if it was Caesar himself. It didn't matter. And Paul says that when Peter came to Antioch, that when he saw him do this, when he turned away and went over to the Jews and had nothing to do with the Gentiles anymore, he said that what I did is I confronted him to his face. And what that really means is that Paul confronted him in front of the whole church. He got right in his face in front of the whole church. Now, when I say that, I don't think that that he was necessarily screaming mad, yelling, and all that kind of stuff. I think it was just with that boldness and that certainty of truth you know, and he confronted him about hey what are what are you doing you know you're you're playing the hypocrite. you know the thing of it is it but Peter is just like us, all of us, uh, and that we have our faults, we have issues in our life, and Peter had his that's for sure, and one of them was is that uh, he had a horrible fear of man. And uh, Proverbs 29, 25 tells us, he said, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe." And obviously Peter, he feared the Jews that had come more than he did what the truth of the, of the Word of God was. And so he found himself in that, in that position. The word here where it says uh, in verse 12, uh, that that when those, these men came from James, that he withdrew, uh, the word here for withdrew is a word that is used for the trimming of your sails. And when you trim a sail, is you, you bring it down so it's not catching so much wind, uh, that there's, uh, you know, there's less resistance against what you're doing. Uh, so that you can actually if you're in a sailboat, it's to be able to gain control. but in this case here it is that idea of res- of taking the resistance out of it and not being willing to stand in it. Peter's Peter has always been that kind of man um, in that you think about him and even after after the Lord uh, resurrected and how he convinced all the guys to go fishing down at the Sea of Galilee, you know, and there was just always for him an easier way to not stand for what he needed to. You think about when he was there in, uh, uh, at Christ's trial, and how when he was confronted about who he was, how he denied it. And, you know, the thing of it is, uh, that that was something that was a part of Peter, his character. Although he did come out of that. I mean, when you read the end of his life, he, uh, uh, he spent uh, eight months in the uh, Mamertine prison uh, in a place where they say that the stench was so bad that most people couldn't last that long. But yet he did, and his wife was crucified in front of him and uh, it is said that what he determined was, "I'm not worthy to be crucified as my Lord." Uh, so they crucified him upside down. Eventually, that that boldness came out of him, in you know, out of him, and was a part of who he was, as well. But that's the whole thing. Uh, you know, it, it is said that God's best men are men at best, and that's the truth. You know, we all we all have faults and we all have failings. It's interesting. I just had a conversation with a young man today, and talking about the Lord and and standing for the Lord and being willing to die for the Lord and that kind of thing. And in our conversation, uh, you know, telling him that we know that we'll die for the Lord if we'll live for Him now. If you won't live for Him today, you won't die for Him tomorrow. It's just that simple. And if you won't stand in a culture like what we're living in right now, that's living for him, standing for the gospel, and standing for purity and holiness and righteousness and truth. If you won't do that, then you won't do it if your life is threatened. You'll buckle. And, and so it's important that we live in such a way uh, that, that we're willing to live for Christ no matter what the cost. And certainly for Peter, if you look at it, the cost was that he would be looked down upon by these Jews had he continued to fellowship with the Gentiles. And so, you know, uh, Peter is still just a man and he needed to be confronted. And so Paul does. And I think it falls right in line with what he was talking about and how, when he had said that when he talked to the the uh, elders of the church, that they, they had nothing to offer him. They had nothing to add to what he had. It, it, and he was a contemporary of theirs uh, and not, not lesser than them. And so uh, Paul confronted uh, Peter as he needed to be conf- confronted. And then in verse 13 it says, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. So Peter's influence on the rest of the Jews, they're talking about. They're talking about those in Antioch Jews that had converted, that had become Christians. When they saw Peter do that, well, then they did it too. Uh, and so much so that it wasn't just the rest of the Jews, but it was also that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And this this speaks volumes. You know, uh, you have uh, Barnabas. Paul. I mean, they were good friends. Uh, They had gone on missionary journeys before. Barnabas was the one that brought Paul up uh, to Antioch when the Spirit was being poured out on the Gentiles, and they had gone on uh, missions trips together, and he was the one that was an encourager of Paul in his ministry. So to have Barnabas do that, uh, to turn his back on the Gentiles, and to turn his back basically on Paul and what he was teaching, it would have been extremely hurtful, you know. I don't know about you guys, you know, have you ever had somebody that's really close to you, that you love, that hurts you like that, you know, that when the chips were down they turned their back on you, you know. I have. I've had that happen. You know, I think most of us have, if not all of us, at some point or another. And the closer and the nearer that, that relationship is, the more painful that that experience is when it happens. But once again, it is, they're just men. But Paul, he's saying here, of course, that what has happened is that that Peter influenced even Barnabas, somebody that was as solid and as close as they were together. And also uh, Barnabas too. I mean, he was totally, you know, um, behind the Gentiles becoming believers. And uh, so the people would look up to the leaders and this had the potential to turn the direction of the whole church. So if, if this wasn't addressed by Paul, if it wasn't dealt with, we could be living in a time right now where there's this great divide within the church where you have part of the church that believes that it's grace by faith uh, and not of works and then you got others that it, oh no it's it's faith plus works oh imagine that even though it was even though it was dealt with of course it, because of the fact that the enemy loves to work you know within the lives of believers to destroy the work that Christ wants to do within the world the greatest way that he does that is brings bring division and uh, that same young man and I were talking in uh today about the idea of the the differences that we have uh, amongst us in different uh, denominations and i told him i said you know for the most part i I don't like to find out where somebody goes to church uh, because of the fact that instantly it has the potential of bringing division where if if they believe in christ and they believe that he's the only way the truth and the life and they believe that you obtain that through faith and not not of works then the other things are insignificant to me as far as fellowship goes and don't get me wrong i i believe in doctrine and i believe in standing on doctrine i do and in our church we will stand on the doctrine that we believe but i think that it can get in the way sometimes of fellowship with one another and uh, and so we have to be careful of that it's unavoidable uh, that I realize I mean I don't live in a utopian world where I believe that the church is going to be unified and everybody's going to be just happy and get along Uh, you know don't worry be happy we're all good good folks it doesn't work but nonetheless it needed to be dealt with then if we think it's bad now I think it would have been much worse now had this not been dealt with in the beginnings of the church if it had not been addressed, you know the fact is though that Barnabas and Peter, and and the other Jews that were there, they had this great influence over people, and they were causing them to begin to doubt whether or not grace, uh, uh, salvation through faith, uh, was enough. That it had to be. There had to be more to it. And I find that an interesting thing because. Uh, for some reason we we have a tendency to where we feel like you know we got to do something we got to do something just resting and nothing and our doing nothing is difficult for us to do when I say that not that our our Christianity should not have action not that our faith should not put uh, our lives in motion that's not what I'm talking about I'm talking about concerning our salvation that for some reason we humans have this tendency to where we want to work for it. You know, we want to find ourselves worthy of that gift by working for it. And of course, the Lord has made sure that we don't. But the influence of leaders over others is, is really one of those things that's very critical. And, and it's a good exhortation to leaders to make sure that, that they live their life in such a way that when they're influencing others, that they're influencing them for, with the right things. In James 3.1, it says, my, "'My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, "'knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment.'" You know, God says, hey, if you're gonna be a leader, if you're gonna be one who's going to lead people in the church, then you need to know what you believe, why you believe it, and, and follow it, and, and not take it lightly. But the exhortation can easily be found in every one of our lives because of the fact that all of us have somebody in our life that we have influence over. Whether it's a child or, uh, uh, yeah, whatever it may be friends, children, you know, position in the church, whatever it may be, we all have a position of authority in somebody's life. And what are we doing with that? You know, it's very critical that we make sure that we are doing what we should be. And, you know, I, I think of, of the fact that uh, I, I would gladly sacrifice any liberty that I had for the sake of others so that they would not stumble. And that has to be, to be honest with you, that needs to be a, a self-imposed restriction in your life, because once we start telling people what they have to do, uh, unless the word is clear about it, then uh, then we start to become legalistic. And that's, that's huge. Uh, that's really bad, of course, uh, to become legalistic. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But the influence of leaders over others. And I have this one example that uh, is really important because I think it's one of the most significant groups of people that has influence over others. And that is moms. I think mothers have more influence in the world than anybody. They raise up children uh, to either walk with the Lord or not. But I want to give you an example of one who had 16 house rules uh, by Susanna Wesley. And some of you have heard it before. It was John Wesley's mother. Susanna Wesley was the mother of 19 children, including John and Charles Wesley. Uh, through much adversity, she dictated her life, dedicated, I'm sorry, dedicated her life to instilling a sense of Christian destiny into each of her children. Her children went on to change the world. And I love this example because John, John and Charles Wesley are two of my favorite examples of the influence of men in the world. They started Method, the Methodist Church and through their Methodism literally spread the gospel of Jesus Christ from the East Coast to the West Coast and everything in between. And it was a powerful ministry at one time. And it was because of their mother and the discipline of, of their mother uh, here are 16 rules she laid down in her home. Eating between meals was not allowed. As children, they are to be in bed by eight. Uh, they are required to take medicine without complaining, uh, subdue self, uh, in uh, self-will in a child and those working together with God to save the child's soul. Uh, to teach a child to pray as soon as he can speak. I think that's great man Uh, require all to be still during family worship I think that's another one that's great too Uh, give them nothing that they cry for and only that when asked for politely Uh, to prevent lying punish no fault which is first confessed and repented of I found that very interesting in other words You know, if they confessed it and they repented of it, well, then the punishment wouldn't be as it would be had they not done so. Uh, Thus, I think Ephesians chapter 6, you know, about fathers not uh, provoking your children, you know, to wrath uh, through over disciplining. Uh, Never allow a sinful act to go unpunished and never punish a child twice for a single offense. Comment and reward good behavior, uh, any attempt to please, even if poorly performed, should be commended, and preserve property rights, even in smallest matters, uh, strictly observe all promises, and require no daughter to work before she can read, and then teach children to fear the rod. Works well. On discipline, Suzanne Wesley believed that for a child to grow into a self-disciplined adult, he or she must, be, uh, must first be a parent-disciplined child. To her, the stubborn flesh was the hardest battle for Christians to fight, and godly parents would do well to equip their children to overcome it early. Uh, she writes, when the will of a child is totally subdued, and it is brought to revere and stand in awe of the parents, then a great many childish follies may be passed by. I insist on the conquering of the will of children, of, of children bedtimes, because this is the only strong and rational foundation of a religious education. When this is thoroughly done, then a child is capable of being governed by reason and piety. It is interesting uh, because John Wesley wrote a huge volume on disciplining children, how to raise children. And I'm sure he got a lot of it from his mother uh, because of the fact that he grew up in such a household as that. Influence over others. It's important that we understand that we have influence over others. Live our lives in such a way that it does not cause them to stumble. And that's exactly what Paul was talking about with Peter and Barnabas, what they were doing. It was causing other Jews to think that they had to go back to being um, a Jew. And then not only that, but to convince Gentiles now they have to become Jews. And you remember he used Titus as an example. He said that when I took Titus to Jerusalem, he was not compelled to be circumcised. And they all all knew who Titus was. And so they knew that he was a... a strong believer verse 14 it says but when i saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel i said to peter before them all if you being a jew live in the manner of gentiles and not as jews why do you compel gentiles to live as jew like i said paul corrected peter right in front of the church the whole church everybody would have seen it but like i said i don't think that it was in in some kind of a nasty way i think it was probably done uh, very tasteful. But even, you know, and especially if you're one of the top leaders in the in the church, uh, having someone correct you, and especially in front of the church, that's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing for people to do, even if they're not leaders in the church, to be corrected in front of others, especially in front of the whole church. But Peter, he took it well. As a matter of fact, we see it in 2 Peter 3:15 and 16. It says, And consider that the longsuffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So here, you know, Peter says that the things that Paul is writing is so authoritative that his writings are scripture. He also calls him our beloved brother Paul. This is the guy who has been chastised in front of the whole church for what he had done, for being a hypocrite. And Peter, he received that. He's going, Oh, that, that was right. I was wrong, and he was man enough to, to do that. He said, I, Like I said, I don't think Paul called Peter out in a way that would demean Peter, but he knew the severity of the situation, and this had to be addressed, but it was not there. If, if it was not there, the, if it was not, there would be a split in the church, and to Peter's credit, he didn't get all bent out of shape over it either verse 15, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. So this is what they called Gentiles. They were sinners. The Jews had the law. So they were not sinners as the, as the Gentiles. The Gentiles did not have the law of God. And, and with the law of God, the morality that God brings into the culture and such. You know, if you think about the Roman culture, Greek culture, man, I mean, tell you, it's hedonism at its highest, right? Anything goes, everything goes. You know? And so they considered the Gentiles those without the law. They were sinners, right? And the Jews, uh, it, it was a different kind of idea than what we think of today when we call somebody a sinner. We're all sinners, even the Jews. They were sinners too. But they saw themselves as being different because they had the law of God in their lives. So they referred to them in that way. Verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. So in this verse, the word justified occurs for the first time in this book. And it's a legal term borrowed from the law courts, and it means to declare righteous. It its opposite is to condemn. But since people are condemned sinners and God is holy, how can people be justified then? Paul answers the question in a general declaration that negatively man is not justified by observing the law, but positively justification is by faith in Jesus Christ. This is the strong affirmation of Paul and Peter and the rest who introduced this by saying, we know. In other words, Paul is speaking to them and saying, look, we understand this. We know that no one is justified by the law. And there's nothing in our flesh that will enable us in order to become righteous. It is, we are justified by faith through in Jesus Christ. And it's followed by a statement in which Paul explained that he had put this doctrine to the test and validated it in, even in his own experience. He, you know, this was the guy that was the, the Pharisee of Pharisees. This was a guy that knew the law inside and out. Here was a guy who obeyed the law, who lived the law. And he'll tell us a little bit later in this book of, of his status within Judaism. He was a, He was one of the top dogs. And he said, but guess what? All that didn't save me. What saved me was my faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. And it wasn't that I had all those other things. As a matter of fact, he considers all those other works that he had as being dung. Nothing but a big pile of manure. And so Paul, by his own life, validated it, that this was true. And then Paul reaffirmed that justification is by faith and not by works. Of course, this this is the whole crux of this epistle. Uh, Paul dealing with that idea that we are saved by grace through faith. Verse 17, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. So the Judaizers saw it as they saw it. uh, The idea that we are made right before God by faith in Jesus alone wasn't real enough. How could they be accepted by God if they still battled sin? And they're thinking this made Christ a minister of sin because Jesus' work of making them right with God apparently didn't make them right enough. So that that was the Judaizers' idea, of course. But Paul answers that and he says, no, certainly not. Uh, and, and he actually answers it in a very brilliant way. The First, he says, yes, we seek to be justified by Christ and not by Jesus plus our own works. Second, yes, we ourselves also are found sinners. That is, we acknowledge that we still sin even though we stand justified by Christ. But no, this certainly does not make Jesus, the author or the approver of sin in our life. And he is not a minister of sin. Paul addresses this in the book of Romans. Remember when we started out of this book, we talked about the fact that this is kind of like the little mini Romans book. Paul addresses the whole issue of justification by faith and not of works and all these things as he does in the book of Romans as well. Verse 18, for if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. There is no more sin, there is, I'm sorry, there is more sin in trying to find acceptance before God by our law keeping than there is sin in everyday life as a Christian Paul says that he has torn down the law as a standard of righteousness, but certainly there are standards of moral behavior that the New Testament upholds. But as far as making the law the standard, then I make myself a transgressor when I do that. There's no doubt in the New Testament, it's a much higher standard of living for the Christian than there was in the Old Testament law. Because... It takes it, you know, when you examine that against the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus takes the whole idea of the law and he takes it from the outward keeping of the law to the inward working of that law within your heart and showing that just because you manage not to commit the sin doesn't mean that you're not guilty, right? The easiest one to look at, of course, is that of adultery, you know? They say, you, th- you say you do not commit adultery, but I tell you that if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you have. And he takes it right from the outward appearance to basically between me and God, because God sees everything. And that's a much higher standard than the law, because you guys can watch my life wandering around here, and you can say, oh, that Pastor Bob, he's a pretty righteous guy, right? Somebody say amen, please. <laughs> But the truth is, God sees my heart and he knows that as I'm wandering around, how many, how many of those laws am I breaking in my heart? So the standard for a Christian is much higher than that of an Old Testament saint. And because it, it comes down to God seeing everything and now we're responsible for that. Which means that I have to always be looking to do the right thing. Uh, but I don't want to put this all on ourselves because it's impossible to do it at all without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We must rely upon the Holy Spirit to enable us to overcome those things, to not fall into sin, to not give in to the thoughts, right? James makes it very clear, right? It starts in the head, you know, it hits the heart, and once it gets there, it leads to action, And once the action comes, it leads to death. So there's a process that's there that God gives us warning. Cut it off before it ever gets started. As soon as that thought pops into your head, get rid of it. There's no sin in the thought. The sin is dwelling upon the thought. What was it? Moody, I think he said that you can't stop a bird from landing on your head. But you can keep him from making a nest. Right? And that's the whole thing. And so, you know, that that standard that we live by as, as New Testament believers, it's much higher than the law of the Old Testament. And it would be bad if it wasn't for what God has done for us in order to be able to work all that out. You see, Paul says here in verse 19, For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. The law itself killed Paul. It showed him that he never could live up to the law and fulfill his holy standard. For a long time before Paul knew Jesus, he thought God would accept him because of his law keeping. You know, here's what happens when, you, when you're living that way. And there are people who are caught up in, in uh, cults and stuff that, that live under this burden constantly that even though they can't keep all the rules, they have to make everybody think that they are. Because that's, that's their hope. That's their security. That's everything. And so they have to live, you know, outwardly, always, continuously, hypocritically. When Paul, what he saw in the law was that, that it showed him how he was unable to keep the law. And I love that there in Romans when Paul uses the example of the sin of covetousness as the one that he says, I would have not known covetousness if not for the law. And I think about that. Out of all the things that Paul did, so much of that was outwardly. But what what sin would really be so inwardly nobody would know it? Covetousness. Right? So for Paul, he says, the law revealed to me my sinfulness. It showed me that I was a sinner and that that there was really, there was no hope because I had to try to live a lie. I couldn't possibly live that holy. He came to a point where he really understood the law and and understanding it in the way that Jesus explained it. And uh, Paul realized that the law made him guilty before God and not justified before God and this sense of guilt before God killed Paul and made him see that keeping the law wasn't the answer. And I love what Kenneth Wiest had to say uh, on this particular verse. He said, he, speaking of Paul, he found that what the law did was to reveal sin, to provoke sin, in a certain sense, to create sin, that, that idea of, of having to be a hypocrite, you know, living a lie. So, you're creating a sin by trying to hide the sin that you're committing by making others think that you're not sinning. And so, he said, but rather, uh, he said that he found that it provided no remedy for sin. I'm sorry, let me back up. Uh, in a certain sense, created sin for where there was no law, sin was not reckoned. He found that it provided no remedy for sin, but rather condemned him hopelessly, for no one can fulfill its requirements. It exercised a double power over him, for it made him a sinner and punished him for being one. Both. The poet says, still quoting Wiest, do this and live, the law commands but gives me neither feet nor hands a better word the gospel brings it bids me fly and gives me wings and man that's just so true the law it condemns us and leaves us hopeless because there's no way that i can fulfill the law there's no way i can keep the law but when it comes to the gospel it, it reveals my sin to me, but also gives me the hope, because I can be delivered from that sin. And Paul has said here that, he says that uh, through the law I died, that I might live to God. In Romans uh, 7, 1 through 4, Paul says, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if, his, if the husband dies, she is released from the law <clears throat> of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you, who, uh, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who is, was raised from the dead, that we should bear uh, fruit to God. Once again, if I can quote Weist one more time, he says, he says that he has thus died to the law that he might live unto God. Subjection to the law as a means of acceptance with God in reality prevented him from living a life of unreserved devotion to God. This is one of the most grievous vices of legalism, that it comes between the soul and God. You know... You can understand the passion of Paul as he presents to us the doctrine of salvation uh, by faith through grace. The passion, because he was delivered from that bondage that he had of trying to find himself reconciled to God through the keeping of the law, but constantly finding himself a lawbreaker. And, And you know, he tells us there in Romans, of course, that that was the purpose of the law. It's a tutor right? It teaches us that you cannot keep the law. And so therefore, you're under, and so now Paul, here he is, he's been delivered from that. He's no, he's free. He's truly set free from that bondage. Doesn't mean he's not a sinner anymore. You know, once again, you go back to Romans chapter seven, Paul talks about the fact that he does the things he doesn't want to do, does the things, you know, he he doesn't do the thing he wants to do and does the things that he shouldn't do. And, you know, and how, who is going to deliver me from this body of sin? right? And he says, of course, Christ Jesus is Lord. And that's the whole idea, is that even though he's still a sinner, that, that redemptive power of, of the blood of Christ continues on in our life with that simple profession, uh, confession uh, and profession of Christ, and, and we find ourselves delivered and forgiven from the sin that is in our lives. And those who, and this is the thing about the book of Galatians, as Paul is talking to them, he's saying, look, you know, I can't, believe, I can't believe that you're going back to this. Having been delivered from the law, now you want to listen to these guys, and you want to put yourself back under the law again. You know, I, I think of this as a man, as an adult male. And if they were telling me I had to be circumcised, I'd have to give second thoughts as to whether or not I still wanted to be a Christian, right? but if you love the Lord enough, you'd probably do anything, right? And Paul is saying, guess what? That's not necessary. God doesn't require that. That's a work of the flesh. For Gentiles, for the Jew, that's a different story. That's a a covenant promise for the Jew all the way through. It doesn't end, and even still to this day. Jews who are nominal in the fact that they're just in name only, and that they're national Jews, they still observe the The rites of of circumcision and bar mitzvah, and even though they may not be religious Jews, they'll still do those things, right? Because it's really ingrained within their promises uh, from God. In verse 20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ and is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is saying that Jesus died and Paul says, Jesus died in my place on the cross. So it is like it was me up on that cross. He died and I died to the law. And when he died, I died. The King James uh, version puts it this way. It says, uh, I am crucified with Christ. And the reason I bring that up, because in 20, here in our version, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. In the King James Version, it it says, uh, I am crucified with Christ. And the tense in the Greek is such, is that it speaks of it as being a past completed action, having present finished results. So in other words, this was done. And so now, the results of that action are going on in my life. I am still crucified with Christ, and now my life is not my own, but it's His, and and it's an action that, that does not cease. Paul uses it to show that his identification with Christ at the cross was a past fact, and that the spiritual benefits that have come to him through his identification are present realities with him. By this statement, he also shows how he died to the law. Namely, by dying with Christ, who died under its penalty. The law's com- demands were satisfied and therefore have no more hold on Paul. It, but thus, being crucified with Christ meant also to Paul death to self. And when Paul died with Christ, it was the Pharisee Saul who died. It is interesting, right, that he goes from Saul to Paul, and there's this whole new life in him. He, no, he never uses the name Saul again in the, in the New Testament, anyways. What he was and did up to that time passed away so far as he was concerned. Saul was buried, and the old life with him. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, he says. And since he died with Christ on the cross, he has a different life. The self-righteous, self-centered Saul died. Further, death with Christ ended Paul's enthronement of self. He yielded the throne of his life to another, to Christ. But it was not in his own strength that Paul was able to live the Christian life. The The living Christ himself took up his abode in Paul's heart when he says, Christ lives within me. You know, when we read this, we have to understand this, this is to every person who calls upon the name of the Lord. Christ lives in us. And the life that we live is not our own. It belongs to Him, and we are to live for Him and Him alone. Right? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And that you do not be conformed uh, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind which it, uh, so that you will prove what is that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. I, I left I missed up a couple of the ones on uh, the second verse there, but I was close. Close doesn't get it, but I still got it. Uh, so there. But the point is is that this is for every one of us. Uh, that we we no longer live for ourselves we live for Christ when we you know we were set free from the bondage of sin we may not have been under the law because we didn't know the law you know but certainly now we know the freedom that we have in Christ that that we are no longer subject subjugated to sin if i have sin in my life it's because i am not exercising the power of god through his holy spirit If I have sin that is dominating me, it's because I'm not giving it over to the Lord. You know, I haven't used this in a long time, but it's time that I do, and that is this. I have no sin in my life that I don't like. The sins that I like, I still have them because I don't give them over to the Lord, but the ones that I don't, I've given over to the Lord, and He's taken them from me, and I don't practice those things any longer. And many of those things, they're not even even in the scope of of, of having been in my life because they're so far removed from me. Now, don't get me wrong. You can't all be perfect like me and not have sin. <laughs> Just kidding, of course. We all have sin, and I have sin. But the truth is, is that God has given to us this wonderful relationship with Him if we are crucified with Him and we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Christ. Our life is not our own. I love it, you know, the idea that the self-righteous, self-centered soul died. Boy, that should be our motto in our own heart, in our own life. The self-centered, the self-righteous Bob died. Yeah, I know you're thinking, yeah, that's true for you, that's for sure, right? It's true for all of us, there's no doubt. Like I said, it was not through his own strength, it's through Christ living in him and uh, Yet Christ does not operate automatically in a believer's life. It is a matter of living the new life by faith in the Son of God. It is then faith and not works or legal obedience that releases divine power to live a Christian life. This faith stated Paul builds on the sacrifice of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. In essence, Paul affirmed, if he loved me enough to give himself for me, then he loves me enough to live out his life in me. And this is true. Now we are to live. And now we are alive to Jesus. There are eight personal pronouns in this verse. The I's and the me's that are there. And it's all about, and they're, they're not in that negative sense. Right? It's all about me being crucified with Christ, Christ in me, you know, all this. And it's all, it's a good thing to have that kind of statements going on in our hearts. Uh, Verse 21 Do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So Paul declared, I do not set aside the grace of God, and that clear, implication is that Peter and the others who followed him were setting aside God's grace by embracing the law once again, particularly in circumcision. You know, it's kind of like that was the the big one to get them locked in. The essence of grace is for God to give people what they have not worked for. According to Romans 4.4, now to him who works works, the wages are not counted as grace, but debt. To insist on justification or sanctification by works is to nullify the grace of God. Further, such insistence on legal obedience also means Christ died for nothing. If if I can earn my salvation, if I can prove myself to be righteous, why did Jesus have to go to the cross? And that's that's the mantra of the world, isn't it? They believe they can. They believe that they can do that, but they cannot. And Christ did not die in vain; he died so that sinners can be set free from sin and death so here's the thing we are uh, We just have to continue to trust Jesus for our justification, not fall back onto uh, you know self righteousness or or even looking at righteousness as being um, the way that we earn God's favor. We have God's favor, and because of that, now we want to walk in righteousness, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are justified by faith and not by our works, but are we letting Christ live in and through us is the question. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, I I just thank you so much for this book and the, the power that it contains about directing our hearts into that place of of being with you and not trusting in ourselves thank you father and i pray that you continue to do a work in our heart i pray that you would bring people into our path that we can share the gospel with this week and i pray god give us the boldness and the words that we might do so fill us with your holy spirit go with us now in jesus name amen god bless y'all Came back at a time, and people saw people who had stolen him. Oh, I think, he did. I, think he I think he was dead. I think, like, first, I that like, she mentioned that he had stolen him. And, you know, you're stolen. Uh, so I mean, drunk. You're dead. It's like the night and the day he was in the deep. He drowned. God washed up on the